1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
2: Guess what, Gabe? What's that, Will? Do you know it's been over 70 years since Smokey Bear started saying, and we all know this phrase, only you can prevent forest fires wow, has it really been that long? He's been at it a while. He has been at it a while, but you know, I'd actually forgotten that it was only a few years after Smokey was created that this real live bear cub kind of became this living symbol of Smokey. After he was rescued, there had been this raging forest fire in New Mexico, and and fortunately, he was rescued, and, and thanks to those who saved him, he recovered fully and ended up being moved to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. Now, that's where people fell in love with Smokey, and it was during and after his recovery. They started sending him letters and even gifts of honey, and I think this is hilarious and, and just really cute that so many people did that. But he got so many letters that he even ended up with his own zip code. It was 20252. That was dedicated to Smokey Bear.
3: <laughs> that's that's so great. How many letters are we talking about, though?
2: Now, apparently at the height of Smokey popularity, we're talking 13,000 a week, 13,000 a week. Oh I mean, that's like Beatles-level fandom. It's just unbelievable. Now, Smokey lived at the National Zoo for 26 years <laughs> before he passed away, so he had a good life. But, you know, of course, the illustrated Smokey we all know from the ad campaigns lives on So I've seen figures that claim Smokey is recognized by as much as 95 percent of American adults. Though thanks to the song by Steve Nelson and Jack Rollins, most of us grew up knowing him as Smokey the Bear. I don't know. Did you refer to him as Smokey the Bear as a kid, Gabe?
3: I am guilty of that. Yes. Me too.
2: Me too. In fact, it's really hard not to say that, but either way, he's a pretty cool mascot and Today's show is all about mascots. We thought we'd share some of our favorite stories behind several of the company mascots we grew up with. In fact, Smokey is just the first of nine. So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and today I'm joined by our good friend and researcher, Gabe Luzier. Gabe, how's it going? Going well. Thanks for having me on. The mango's on vacation with his family. Hopefully, he's having a great time. But not to worry, there's still another familiar face over there on the other side of the soundproof glass wearing the coolest pair of shades I think I've ever seen him wear. And he's worn lots of cool shades here. But, you know, <laughs> honestly, at first I thought he was just being lazy with today's theme. I I didn't really get it. But then, Gabe, you know what he did? He pulled out a snack pack of Cheetos and I knew it.
3: Oh, yeah, sure. I get it. He's he's Chester the Cheetah.
2: That's right. Chester the Cheetah. (laughs) Anyway, nice job, Tristan. All right, Gabe. So I kick this off with some facts about Smokey Bear. So which mascot do you
3: want to start with? Well, I thought I'd start with one of the earliest brand mascots I can think of, which is actually the Michelin Man who made his debut in Paris way back in 1898. And I mean, you know this guy, right? Well, yeah, he, of course. He kind of looks like a gooey mummy, or that marshmallow man from Ghostbusters. Stay puff marshmallow
2: man. That's what he looks. That's, that's who I always thought that's about.
3: The one? Well, I don't know about you, but I always wondered why he was all white like that. Mm-hmm. Because the company's founder, you know, he got the idea for the character after noticing that a stack of tires yeah, kind of resembled a limbless man. You know, maybe if you squint. So. Right. But if that's the case, then why not make them all black, right? Well, as it turns out, tires weren't colored black until 1912. Before that, they were either beige or gray-white. Huh. So while the Michelin Man might look a little off to us today, his look was right on target back in the late 19th century. And in fact, in December of 1898, the Michelin Man got his first and only speaking engagement at a Paris cycle show, <laughs> and the crowd loved him. One of the company's co-founders, Andre Michelin, he had arranged for this large cardboard cutout of the character to be set up at the Michelin booth. And then he paid this uh, cabaret comedian to crouch behind the cutout and kind of banter with the crowd. Well, the performance was such a hit that police actually had to come break up the unruly crowd. (laughs) For a cardboard cutout, it really kind of makes you
2: wonder what uh, the entertainment options were at that point. You said back in the late
3: 1890s, is that right? Yeah, 1898, and, and you know, even though the Michelin Man hasn't talked very much since that event, he's had quite a lot to say in print, and that's because when the company launched an Italian travel magazine in 1907, the Michelin Man was given his very own column, and as it turns out, he can be a pretty scary guy. Like In one article, he praised his company's success while deriding his tire-selling rivals as, quote, ashen-faced suitors with fixed smiles. Living symbols of a shattered illusion. It's pretty intense, right?
2: That is wild. Yeah. so so he ended up with a column in an Italian travel magazine. That's not something I'd ever guessed. and I, I didn't know that either about the uh, the tires. That's pretty interesting. So they used to be beige or or kind of a a whitish color. I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I'm going to actually stick with that Italian theme. You talk about the Italian travel magazine, so we're going to go with a different mascot with a connection to Italy as well. Now, I think we've talked about Tony the Tiger on the show before and the fact that he wasn't the only Frosted Flakes mascot at first, and you know, Tony had to beat out Katie the Kangaroo and a bunch of others to become the real star that he is today. But what Mm -hmm. I didn't remember was that during the 1970s, We actually started to get to, you know, to know his family a little bit more. We didn't realize he had a family before. And so TV viewers got to meet his mother. Her name was Mama Tony. His wife was also Mrs. Tony. And his son, any guesses? Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Tony Jr. I think you picked up on the pattern here, Gabe. And his daughter was Antoinette. So you can see the kind of clever Uh connection there. And it was this big, happy Italian family. And apparently a family that was so appreciated for his heritage that he appeared on the cover of the Italian edition of GQ. That's Tony the Tiger on the Italian edition of GQ. That's great. All right. So
3: uh, so what do you have next for us, Gabe? Uh, Alright, well, you just talked about probably one of the most likable mascots in history, so I'm going to go in the opposite direction and tell you about one of the most annoying, and that would be none other than the Noid, <laughs> the uh, troll-like claymation character that Domino's debuted in the 80s, and yep. if you've managed to avoid the Noid so far and you've never seen him, he was this, uh, this creepy little guy in a skin-tight red onesie with these bent-up rabbit ears on top, and And the idea was that he was, uh, quote, a physical manifestation of all the challenges inherent in getting a pizza delivered in 30 minutes or less. So, you know, he literally put the noid in a noid. That was the idea. <laughs> and and Domino's used him in a string of commercials throughout the eighties. And and so this, you know, obnoxious little mascot would show up and crush people's pizzas or mess up their orders. And for whatever reason, the character, he just really took off. And in fact, he even got his own Nintendo game called Yo Noid. So <laughs> That's how far this went, but uh, then things took a dark turn for the character. And uh, on January 30th, 1989, a man with a revolver stormed a Domino's Pizza in Atlanta, Georgia, and took two employees hostage. Hmm. So there was this uh, five-hour standoff with the police, and during that time, the gunman actually—he still—he forced the hostages to keep making him pizza after pizza. It's it's a nightmare, but. Wow. Thankfully, the two employees they were able to escape unharmed, and and their captor was uh, was apprehended. But here's the wildest part: the guy's name Kenneth Lamar Noyd. Oh, so, so was this the reason that he decided to hold these
2: people hostage because of the mascot, or what?
3: Apparently, uh, as one police officer later explained, the assailant had, quote, an ongoing feud in his mind with the owner of Domino's Pizza about the Noid commercials. So apparently the whole ordeal, it just came about because this guy thought Domino's had invented the Noid to personally make fun of him.
2: Wow, that's bizarre.
3: All right, well, the next mascot I
2: want to talk about might not have caused any standoffs in any pizza locations or anything like that, but he definitely annoyed a lot of people. Now, Gabe, you might be too young for this. In fact, I kind of hope for you and Tristan that you dodge this one, but are you familiar with Microsoft, Bob? Uh, no, I uh, can't say it rings any bells. Okay, well, consider yourself lucky because Bob was created <laughs> to help people get to know Windows 95 a little bit better. And so Bob would take you through his house which was actually your computer. And he had all these weird and kind of creepy friends to help you along the way. There was this coffee-drinking lizard. There was an angry (laughs) parrot and all of these others. But it was actually kind of funny reading about the focus groups that were used to test out Bob and all these other characters before the product came out. Now, the women in the groups reported that the characters were too male and that they felt a little creeped out by them as though they were actually watching them. So, you know, somehow the product still made it to market despite this. Oh, and there's one last thing, one more reason that probably a lot of people are very angry about Bob's creation, and that's because he's responsible for the typing font that's probably caused more anger than any other in history, and that's Comic Sans. It was apparently created just for Bob, and Bob you know, not surprisingly, only lasted about a year.
3: Yeah. Wow. What a
2: legacy. (laughs) No kidding. All right, Gabe. So what do you have next?
3: Okay. So I admit I was looking for an excuse to talk about one of my favorite mascots, which of course is Mr. Peanut. (laughs) I wouldn't have guessed that. But the problem is he he doesn't have that great of an origin story. Like back in 1916, the Planters Company launched this uh, contest to design a mascot for their brand, and you know this this uh, young schoolboy he submitted the winning sketch, and then a commercial artist added uh, the trademark top hat, monocle, and cane, and you know it's pretty standard stuff as far as origins go, right? Well. I kept digging. And while I didn't find much on the real Mr. Peanut, I did find a pretty amazing story about a Mr. Peanut impersonator <laughs> who tried to become the mayor of Vancouver no back way. in 1974. This is true. Now, the man behind this was really an artist named Vincent Trazoff, and he considered his uh performance art persona of Mr. Peanut to be a symbol of artists and you know their sometimes nutty ambitions and and he really went all out with this campaign. Like he he wore the big bulky Mister Peanut costume, and he went out on all these random public appearances. And he would tap dance to "Pennies from Heaven." Apparently, that was his number. But hmm. for his campaign platform, he even turned Peanut into an acronym, which stood for performance, elegance, art, nonsense, uniqueness, <laughs>
2: and talent. I, I think uh, I think nonsense is the key part of that one. There.
3: <laughs> well, they're all hallmarks of a Peanut. Let's be honest, but. <laughs> While Trazov's elect-a-nut-for-mayor campaign did bring international attention to Vancouver's mayoral race, it was, I'm sad to say, an unsuccessful bid. They ended up with a human mayor again.
2: Uh, you know, I can't believe it with that, that brilliant acronym and all of that. That's uh, That's really surprising. Yeah. All right, well, Gabe, I think I might have stumbled into the most dysfunctional family of company mascots, and I this was by accident stumbling into this. I had no idea that they were even related before. So are you familiar with the Borden brand of milk?
3: Uh, yeah, I've seen that. It's the one with the cow on the front, right? Yes, and that cow is named Elsie,
2: and she's been the mascot for the brand for something like 80 years now. But what I didn't wow. know is that her husband, Elmer, is the Elmer of Elmer's Glue. How bizarre is this, did you know this?
3: (laughs) No, you're blowing my mind, I had no (laughs) idea he was married. Now
2: the story gets (laughs) even weirder, so hang in there for just a minute. So back in the 40s, Elsie apparently became this really popular mascot and the company decided to start this series of magazine ads and they were a bit more like comics and the whole purpose was to just make her more of a household name. And in the comics, you'd get to know her, you'd get to know her family, and that included her incredibly grumpy husband, Elmer. And grumpy is actually an understatement here. So in every single one of these comics, Elmer was ticked off. Sometimes waving guns, other times screaming, and some of them he accused Elsie of things like regretting being married to him. You wonder about these people in these marketing meetings, and, you know, coming up with the ideas of what their mascots are going to do, and you just think... Why did this take a turn in this direction? But anyway, of course, later, for some reason, when Borden decided to launch a brand of glue, they decided that who else should be their mascot but Elmer. And I guess he was able to pull it together enough to pose for the illustration. But seriously, it's worth looking up these comics because they are that bizarre.
3: Yeah, no kidding. But I'm curious, like, why would a dairy company start making glue in the first place? Like, what's the connection there? oh, wait, is it the whole, like, glue factory thing? Like, was it the hooves? That's pretty dark. That would that would be a
2: good guess, but it would have been the casein at that point, and that's the protein in dairy milk. Of course, today the glue is made with synthetic materials, nothing involving the cows at this point, But um, but, yeah, that's where it all came from. So just a bizarre story, and stumbling into that one was a lot of fun. All right, well, we each have one more fact to go, but before we get to those, let's
0: take a quick break.
1: Visit LiveNation.com slash to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, some 41, 30 Seconds from Mars. Oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
2: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, where we're talking company mascots. All right, Gabe, we each have one fact to go. What's your last one for the day?
3: Well, you just told us about, uh, you know, the disgruntled bull, bull Elmer, and I actually went with another four-legged mascot who's kicked up his share of controversy over the years as well, and that's Joe Camel. And, you know, of course, the character has always taken a lot of heat for yeah, you know, being a pretty blatant attempt to get children interested in smoking. But I have to say, as a kid, I was more confused by Joe Camel than anything else. Like, I didn't understand why a product for adults would use a cartoon character. But more than that, I didn't understand why anyone would think a camel was cool in the first place. Like, <laughs> you know, in terms of trendiness and aesthetic appeal, camels don't have. was so a that. little bit weird. I'm with you on that right? So I was all the more surprised to find out that Joe Camel actually got his start in France, of all places. He was uh, originally introduced in a 1974 issue of a French youth magazine called Pilote. And the campaign was so successful in its goal to, quote, youthen in the brand, that in the early 1980s, cigarette execs in the U.S. started recruiting the so-called funny Camel for their own ads. And not only did this U.S. version draw from the French campaign, it also apparently borrowed his cool look from a later Canadian ad that had shown the camel wearing a leather jacket while shooting pool and playing electric guitar. (laughs) So they went a little overboard with that. But despite him being kind of the Fonzie of camels, Joe was used for a decidedly uncool purpose, and that's peer pressure. According to a secret memo that the ad campaign's co-developer wrote to the company's vice president, The camel ads were to be, quote, directed toward using peer acceptance and influence to motivate the target audience to take up cigarettes. So pretty uncool.
2: Yeah, that's definitely not cool. Well, uh, you know what, Gabe? I feel like we need to close on a happier note with our last fact here. And I've got good news for you. I know you're a fan of cooking. And so I found a new cookbook for you. And I'm going to have it waiting for you here in Atlanta the next time that you're here. And it's called the Chiquita Banana Recipe book, and it's published by United Fruit Company. This was back in 1947, and it's kind of weird to think about a time when bananas were considered this exotic fruit, and people didn't know exactly what to do with them, and so now you have this cookbook to tell you exactly what to do, but there are a ton of suggestions for how to use bananas in recipes, and I know you're a vegetarian gay, but I found this recipe in here that that might make you change your mind and it's for ham banana rolls with cheese sauce. <laughs> and I, I wanna confess it almost makes me gag a little bit just saying the name of that recipe, but but what do you think? You think it's worth a try?
3: Yeah, I mean, if anything's going to get me back on the meat wagon, that that's probably it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, for your bravery and willingness on that front,
2: I think that alone gives you the Fact Off trophy. So congratulations, Gabe. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you, Will. And thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat for her help with today's research. We'll be back with a full-length episode tomorrow.
1: Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.